Welcome to Leader Secrets Revealed, tapping into the tips and tricks of great leadership. And this is for new and emerging leaders and people who report to leaders and want to know how they can influence them to be even better. Enjoy. Welcome to Leader Secrets Revealed podcast, where my goal is to help you understand some of the secret skills that exceptional leaders have to create high-performing teams skills that you can develop to increase your abilities to step up into leadership roles, increase your reputation as a leader, and create the sort of culture that you and your team want to be part of. And if you would like to know more about my programs, Dynamic Leaders, my team programs, and the right level of management, or even how to delegate effectively, then please contact me at mariburgess.com or email me at mari at mariburgess.com. I'd love to hear your tips for great leadership. Or if you know people you think I should interview, please let me know. I'm Murray Burgess, and I'm your host today talking with Drew Rodwell, who is an experienced leader, and he's going to share some of his secrets for leadership with us. So welcome, Drew, and thank you for joining Leader Secrets Revealed. Thanks, Murray. So can you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Drew? Okay. um, I've been in the electrical industry for a long time. I started when I was 17. I started as a cadet engineer, which is a really good way to start. I started with a really hands-on uh, process. So we did the same training as as the apprentices. We were out in the field, we were on the trucks, we were building things, we got our hands dirty. It was a, it was a really good process. Uh, I think through that process, I also saw leaders in every position throughout the organisation. So I got to see our senior leaders, but I also got to see guys in the field well, you know, even the ground sparrow, the guy that just looked after picking things up, the things that that guy would know and, and how he knew it and just from his 20 years of experience doing that really showed me that you could learn things from anyone at any time. And for me, that really stuck with me, that everyone has a really interesting story to tell. Their lives are probably a bit more complicated than what we think. And you can always learn something every day from someone else. And I, and I think that set me up really well uh, particularly in an engineering perspective, to think that maybe the spreadsheet isn't always right and the numbers that pop out of it aren't always going to give you the answer. So for me, that was the start. I, I think I've always felt that everyone could be a leader depending on what circumstances they're in and and what skills they brought to a, to a certain situation. And I think that also helps you be a decent leader as well because you know that you're not the one that has the answers all the time. People will have answers for you. Uh, I've had a really interesting career where I've followed uh, basically my interests. And so I've had some really strong technical positions. I've had a lot of project management positions where I've had staff. I've had staff on and off as well, which I think is a really important thing. So from quite early on, from when I was probably about 25, I had a considerable number of staff, around 100. But then I went back to positions where I was just a technical expert. And then I came back to having more staff. And in my recent role, I've had about 220 people work for me. I think that really helps to go away and think about what you do as a leader. And and overall, that has helped me probably understand that there's a lot of different people that can offer a lot of different value. That, that Yeah, and when you sort of said even the person who is a picker-upper, is that what you called them? Yeah, the ground sparrow. The, the ground sparrow. Um, it, it's really what my philosophy around we don't tap into people's potential Um, because we don't go in and find out what else they can do or what they know or what their experience is. And you're right, we're all more complex 
than what we appear by our job description or what we're seen to do. So I love the fact that that is such a key learning from you, even from the very start of when you were a cadet. A cadet. So obviously, well, well, tell me about your leadership story because you obviously didn't start as a leader. You started as a cadet following leaders. So how did you evolve into becoming a leader? It's kind of by accident. Really, we had a restructure in uh, the mid to late 90s where a lot of people left the organisation I was in at the time. And I was a graduate engineer, so I didn't actually have a role. And I had two senior leaders move out of a position and I actually got slotted in instead of those two senior leaders. And really interestingly, we had about 120 projects to do that year worth, I think, about 10 or $12 million at that time, which doesn't sound like a massive amount of money in these days, but it, it was a fairly big job. Well, it's a um, massive number of projects. <laughs> it was a massive number of projects. The amazing bit was I got slotted in there maybe a month before the start of the financial year. We had exactly the same team. And in that year was the first year we ever completed that program of work in, in the company I was in. And what I found amazing was everyone said, oh, we could never do that. We've never been able to do that before. But it was really that upfront work. But what I did was I grabbed the team and, and they knew what they were doing. They'd been doing it for years. And we just slotted everyone in, in a job. We gave them, this is what we want. This is how we want it. This is when we want it. We also did planning with the designer, the operations manager who was going to deliver the work, and myself as the project manager. We got together on every single site. So we visited every one of those 120 sites. And we worked out the best way to build each job. And then we designed it for that. And then it was quite smooth. So I did that for about four years. And what I found was every year there was three to four months of really intense work. And then the rest of the year was just keeping it on track. So for me, that was my first real foray into, into leadership. It was accidental, but I found that I was reasonably good at it. Um, the reason I was reasonably good at it was I lent on other people straight away. Those people knew what they were doing. It probably wasn't until 10 years later that when I did some leadership training that I understood what made that work and why it worked and why those things worked for me. But I also learned why I could put people off too because I was... Um, I came from an engineering background. I had lots of technical knowledge and sometimes I could beat people up with that. You know, I'd be a bit too certain and a bit come across probably a bit arrogant and that's why, um, that's why people generally don't necessarily always like walking, working with all engineers. We're all very certain. Um, I've spoken to you before about David Marquet and he's got probably one of the best quotes that I've ever seen, which is certainty is arrogance and uncertainty is strength. And I think it's really important and it's also important from two perspectives. One is when you're talking up the chain, you, you need to actually leave some room for people to think about what they want to do. But when you have people working for you, you really do not want to be providing answers for them or sound certain all the time. You want them to have space to work within. And so probably what I found is in those early days, I'd given people space because I didn't have the time or space in my head to do all those things. So I found I didn't delegate. I actually, we set out what tasks we were going to do really early in the year. And I just managed whether those people had done those tasks or not or what was getting in their road and how to get those things out of their road. And it worked quite well. So that was, that was my first foray into it. Then I did some quite technical roles where I had to actually influence people from a distance. So I didn't have the, the influential power of having a position, but I had the influential power of being a technical expert or, or having to solve issues for people. 
So this is also another another thing that I've come in and out of over the years where I've actually worked outside of groups and helped them clarify what they need. Quite often they know exactly what they need. It's just whether they can cut through cut through the forest to find out exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So I think for me, um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey and it's also involved work right across New South Wales. So I actually moved out of the company I worked in for a while and worked for Network New South Wales and we looked at strategy, asset strategy across the whole state and across three organisations and this was quite interesting because it was leading up to the sale of the, the network distributors within New South Wales. So there's a lot of work we had to do in in setting up systems that were efficient and would actually be robust enough to, to last through change. They're also based on risk and I think risk is a really important thing to think about. I think people worry about risks that actually don't really matter that much when the real risks are safety or the real risks are, are to the public or they're, they're the real risks. I think we, we find people concentrate on things that really are irrelevant and it's probably one of the biggest issues we have in organisations at the moment. So you, you spoke about um, David Marquette's quote, certainty is arrogance and uncertainty is strength. And you initially had that arrogance because you knew the answers. How did you switch that to move to a state of uncertainty and then let the people around you provide the answers? Um, I had a really good coach at one stage who used um, lifestyle inventory, which is a human synergistics process, to look at what I was doing. Uh, I was wasting a bit of space in defensive patches or aggressive patches where you're moving. Uh, and I'm not saying a lot. I'm not saying I did it all the time. But he said a really blunt thing to me. He said, make your point and then shut up. He didn't say it that nicely, actually. He said he added a few words in there and it really stuck with me. So just make your point once. You don't have to make it 50 times. People might not be ready to hear it. The other thing I learned from that was I need to take people on a journey. So sometimes you can see an answer really clearly that other people can't see. But how do you get people to move on that journey? And I think for me, it's it's a thought pattern of um, how do I get people to move on that? So one of the techniques I use on that is every meeting I run, everything I do, I use four points that I always think of, which is it, I, we, and you. So what is it we're trying to achieve? What do I need to do to make that happen? What do you need to do and what do we need to do together? And to me, I feel that's a, a really simple framework that I keep in my head. I run my meetings that way if I run my meetings at all. They're not usually all that strict. But I, but I like to find space for people to know exactly what they need to do. And um, the other thing is that I think is really quite important is ideas can sometimes float around for quite a long time before they actually come to fruition. And there's always other competing um, priorities that you may not 100% be aware of, but you need to get your head around that that stuff mightn't happen today, but it might happen in six months or 12 months or 18 months. I think the other thing that's really important is the person with the idea isn't always the best person to actually implement the idea. I think the ideas quite often are picked up later by other people who run them in an incredible way and you've just got to be thankful that your idea was picked up and run with. You don't have to be part of it. You don't need to be known about it. You don't you don't have to have anything. You just have to go, wow, that's, that's good. It came out and it came out better than I had imagined it. And I think that's quite important. So the ideas float out there, put them out there and, and let them be. 
Okay. I've written all of these notes that are going to go in the show notes because <laughs> there's some great one-liners there. What help did you get along the way from a, to develop your leadership skills? I've had quite a bit, actually. So as a cadet, we had a mentor program. Uh, so I had a mentor called Gary Brennan who was very good. He helped me in lots of ways, very technically astute, but also very, very keen to teach. And, and I found that really good. But right throughout the process, there were lots of people who were willing to share. Uh, I think the main thing is being open to listen. I think more often than not, people are willing to share and help. It's just a lot of times where people aren't open to listen or they feel like they already know it. So I think. I think there's been no lack of people who've offered me support. I think also support comes from strange places and strange times. So there's people that you don't feel like you've had a great working relationship with or you find you butt heads with from time to time and then when you really seem to need someone to help you, they will actually reach out to you. So it's quite interesting that you have professional respect with people but you might not be all that close but but when things go into their field that they're interested in and they can see you've had an impact in the past, they'll reach out to you. So be open to pretty much everyone, even even people you butt heads with. But, yeah, I've had quite a lot of help um, and we had it in both a structured sense and also um, the friends and people you've developed along the way. Thanks. Um, so you've, you've, ha- you've managed large teams and then you've gone back to the technical expertise and then you've managed large teams again. So it's almost like... You, you do the leadership part, but then you step back into the, the technical part. Were you ever able to build a team or were you generally inheriting teams and what was their performance levels like? Okay, so my most recent team that I've got, I had a couple of people retire, but they were pretty much a new team. Um, interestingly, they were pulled within the business, from within the business, um, I learned a lot when I was at Network New South Wales that you want a diverse team. You want a team that actually doesn't always interact smoothly. You want people to stand up to each other and argue things out and battle it out, but in, in a jovial way or however it happens to be, but they, they can get passionate about it too. You, you do not want a lack of emotion, I feel. I feel nothing happens without emotion. Um, there's no motion without emotion, effectively. So interestingly enough, over the last couple of years, I built a team around experience, but also a couple of very fresh, highly technical people who I knew uh, would be interesting to coach and mentor, but also that I knew I'd have to work with every day. So there were some skills that I would get out of that as well, but but I knew I'd get their energy. And energy to me is something you just can't replicate. It's really hard to to motivate a team without energy. It's it's also easy, really easy to redirect energy rather than have to try and create it. So yeah, you might have a few crashes along the way. You might make a few mistakes. There might be things that don't go well. But in general, well-intended energy will give you really good results. And so I really chose a team on energy and and. Um, that team was pretty diverse. So from from late 50s to early 30s in age, in age group, business backgrounds, hardcore engineering backgrounds, 
mixtures of both, people from within the field and within the office. So for me, it was getting towards a high-performing team. The, the company I was with just gone through a restructure, so that will change. But what we had was a really agile team. So we could respond really, really quickly. The, the thing I would have to say about that in building that team, I changed. So over the last four years, I've changed things like monthly meetings. I've thrown them out. We have weekly meetings. So they might be just a 20-minute catch-up on a Friday afternoon. They can be teleconference or in person, but what I found was most people tried to get there in person. There was no set agenda. The, the team brought the agenda. I didn't say this week we're going to talk about X, Y, Z. We would talk about what was interesting, concerning, um, exciting them that week. And we would talk about that as a team. And most of the time you found that when someone raised an issue, everyone in the team had the same issue. And then we could delve into that issue. But I found for myself that freed up a whole bunch of stuff. I didn't have to come up with an agenda. I didn't have to come up with what we were going to talk about. People knew they'd have to bring something along and we'd, we'd talk about it and we'd go through each of it. Those meetings could be 10 minutes. They could be an hour and a half. They could be two hours. We, we didn't necessarily have a set time limit. We just went from about 2 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. You know, the t- Friday afternoon bit meant they were always finished by 4. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it was a good time limit there. Um, but, yeah, it, for me... for 20 minutes, did they finish at uh, 2.20? No, they still... They, they go back to their work. Um, but it just meant that if we didn't have something burning to talk about, we wouldn't waste time on it. Yeah. And, and what I found with my team is we'd talk nearly every day anyway. We'd talk about something maybe every second day, every third day at most. There'd be nothing brand new for any of us. But we'd be talking regularly. We'd be consistently bringing things back to our, our three or four main issues, which was our, our safety, our reliability, and our program delivery. They were the things that drove everything we did. So we would keep coming back to those. And, and they were important. They were important right through our organisation. The other, the other thing I tried to push for them was a few values I've always thought were really important, which is learning, caring, and owning. I think they're, for me, the only three values you really need. They will all develop improvements. They will also force you to have a bit of long-term thinking. And they, they really force you to think of the impact on your staff of the decisions you're making. And, and I think those three things are a good framework to, to frame your, your decision-making around. I love it. What was your biggest challenge as a leader? So for me, the biggest challenge is providing clarity. I think, I think there's a temptation in organisations to always do more to always be seen doing more. And I, I look at um, business reports and other businesses and our business and the other businesses I've worked with over my time and there was always, we're going to add this, we're going to add that. There was never, well, we're going to stop this and we're going to move to this and we're going to start this and we're going to stop these five things or whatever. It was always more. And, and you see that in large organisations over and over again where they have literally hundreds if not thousands of procedures and policies and safe work method statements and things and people don't actually know what's in them but there's always more added so for me that's one of the biggest hurdles is providing that clarity it's it was also about providing positivity so one of the things i talked about david marquet before he had a great little question that he asked his team and he'd ask in every conversation which was what went well 
And it's really hard when people are being negative to stay negative if someone asks you what went well. And so it's it's one of those things that I think is a really nice little key bit of work to say, well, I know you're feeling frustrated. I know you feel that the organization's holding you back, but what went well and, and how did it go well? Uh, the other thing I find is avoiding a thing called trained helplessness where people feel people feel that they can't do certain things because someone's told them they can't or they've sent an email five years ago to say you can't or whatever else. But if you actually delve within the policies and procedures, the span of control that people have got and their actual ability to do work is huge, mm. but they're limited to what they think they can do or what people have told them they can do. And this quite often, yeah, limits what people can do. So for me, it's people will ring up and say, well, I need X piece of technology. It could be a drone. And you'll go, well, you've got $15,000 delegated authority. How much is the drone? It's $1,200. You go, yeah, so why haven't you bought it already? Well, I haven't bought it because it's a piece of technology and I'm only allowed to buy it through the IT people. Okay, can't you just go to Harvey Normans and buy it or can't you do this or can't you do that? So for me, I think people put artificial limits on what they can and can't Mm -hmm. do, even though in reality they can probably do everything they ever need to do within the policies and procedures and the and the framework they've got. Yeah. Uh, it's just that we've trained people that they need 15 signatures for this or, you know, five bits of paper for that or an email for this or an email for that. So after a while, people give up doing things. So I think that probably is one of the really key challenges. That reminds me of a story I read in one of uh, my colleagues' books, um, Donna McGeorge put a story in one of her books about um, someone came through to audit a company, all their processes and systems to see how effective they were and, and to take away stuff, not to keep adding stuff, as you just mentioned. And he, he found a form that had AR in the top right corner and he didn't know what it was for. So he went to everyone in the organisation and said, what's this AR for? And they went, oh, look, we don't know. We just put zero there. And he goes, oh, so you don't know what it is and you just put zero. And he goes, they say, that's what we do. We fine that's what we've been told to do and so he kept digging back and he kept digging back and he kept digging back and finding this AR still on all the forms going back years back to 1945 and realized that AR started for air raid (laughs) (laughs) of course (laughs) well zero was the right number (laughs) exactly it was the right number but it's like yeah we just don't think about why are we doing stuff repeating the same stuff over and over so yes that just sort of slightly reminded me of that although yours was much more practical um what's your biggest strength in leading effectively i think my biggest strength is that i'm very open to people's suggestions and i'm also open to learning myself so when people criticize me if if that's if that's the term you want to use I welcome it and I like it and I probably always have. I think the other thing that probably helps me out is I think I'm a lot more critical on myself than I am on other people. So I think I will beat myself up for things that I would, wouldn't even bother about with other people if they did them. I just think, oh, that's okay. I think the other one that I've been lucky with is being able to simplify complicated things, theories, ideas, technical terms, business processes to ways that I can share with 
other people. And I guess the last one would be that I really try to have one narrative. So if I speak to the executive or the board, it's the same story that I'll tell the guys in the field or people in the street or the customers. I think it's really important to have one narrative about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And without that, you start to feel a bit artificial or sound artificial. If you're trying to have to imagine what does this audience want to hear or what does that audience want to hear, I'm not saying you don't package them in different ways, but the story should always be the same. And and I think as long as that story is the same, you'll get people to buy into that story. Because yeah, you're creating that consistency. Yeah, that that and also, and I think people believe you because it is what it is. It's there's there's no arguments about whether that that's feels true or that is true or that's whatever you've said. What you've said. The other thing I think that's really important in that is when you're wrong, you've got to go tell people. And you've got to tell them first and say, look, I was wrong about this or I was wrong about that. Yeah. And and I think the other thing is stuff-ups are fun. You've got to laugh at yourself and laugh at your team. It is like the, I love this quote. I don't know where I got it from, but the only people who make mistakes are people who do things. So you've got to do things to make mistakes. You will make mistakes every day. They are funny. And you, you've got to be able to share that with people. You've got to, be able to share what you've learned. Because what you might find is something that feels like a monumental stuff up might only be one or two little ideas away from being a really good idea. And if you don't share that failure with people or you don't, you don't shout it from a rooftop every now and again to say what you've done well or what you haven't done well, you will never get that learning. So I think, I think for me it goes back to that learning, caring, owning. You've got to own your mistakes and you've got to learn from them. And you've got to highlight them and, and get interest out of them. You, you mentioned when you were talking about building your team towards high performance that there was no need to delegate because you'd identify all the tasks at the beginning of the year and, and then just move through the year getting those done and the team would get those done as well. Did they voluntarily take those tasks on or were they, were they um, allocated out? Um, I, I, and the reason I'm asking that is, my belief is leaders often don't step up and do that high-value work because they get stuck in the weeds because uh, they don't know how to delegate effectively. And you seem to have a slightly different spin on that. So I think I think it's probably more allocating rather than delegating. So I'll allocate an outcome rather than a task. And and I think about who who is good at what, but also who might need a development opportunity. And And I think... Rather than, I feel delegation is I've got 100 tasks to do. Can you do those three? Can you do those seven? And I will check on you. And to me, that feels like managing rather than leading. And I'm not saying I, there are times I don't do that. There are lots of things where things come in and there's menial tasks to do and there's a whole bunch of things. And if I get drowned in them, I'll never get to the thinking. But I must say, there's also plenty of those where I go, look, I can do that in three or four minutes. I'm not going to bother my people with it or I can answer that question, or I can find that data, or I can do those things. But that doesn't take a week. That might take a couple of hours a day or an hour a day or something like that. And sometimes it is important to have your hand on those things. So I'm not, there, there are things where I will delegate and say X task goes to this person or Y task goes to that person. But in general, with the 
with the bigger things. I like to set the objectives of what we're doing. I like to have those short weekly punchy catch-ups and I need. I like to use it, I, we, you. So we all know what tasks we've got to do. So we know what it is we're trying to achieve. My team knows what I am going to do to make that happen. And that might be just that I'm checking in to see how they're going or I'm removing roadblocks or I'm making sure that things are approved so the finances are available or X, Y, Z. They know what they have to do and they know what we have to do as a team. So I think by using those things together, I have never really found that I am sitting there going, I need to delegate X task, Y task, Z task. I feel I'm giving people opportunity to generate an outcome for us rather than than each part of us has to do this task or that task. Because I think when we get down to individual tasks, we're actually um, limiting the thought patterns of the other people. And so therefore, they might come up. So I might want an X outcome and I expect it to be done in you know, steps A, B, C, D. Someone might just find a step E that does the whole thing in five seconds if I haven't designated this is what you're going to do and this is how you're going to do it. And generally, I find within those large teams where there's a couple hundred people, someone will know something well beyond what I know and they will come up with a way to get that, that delegated process done. So for a new emerging leader, what would be three leadership t- tips you'd give them? I think the first one, and has worked for me, is follow what you're interested in. I see a lot of people trying to follow a career. So they do, they do jobs where they think they're going to get X experience that allow them to get to the next job. But there are times you see people really struggling in those and they can hold themselves back and get stuck because they're actually not finding something they're interested in. I think the first thing is what are you interested in and, and why? What, what tickles your fancy? Because if it tickles your fancy, you're likely to be really good at it. And other people are likely to be drawn to you because you're good at it. And it doesn't hurt to be good at something as an emerging leader. There's, you shouldn't be hiding your expertise. I know I talked about um, certainty is arrogance before, but there are times when you're an emerging leader where the respect that you get from, from knowing what you know and helping people out, you don't have to use it as a, as a brick to actually bash people around the head with. You can use it as something as a crutch to help people through. So I think what you're interested in, I think I talked about it before, listen to people no matter who they are. The other thing where that's really important is people talk about employment, employee engagement a lot. Employee engagement is measured. I believe it is a function of leadership engagement. Employees are not engaged with leaders who aren't engaged with them. That's what they're measuring. They're not measuring employee engagement because what you find is employees are engaged with their customers. They're engaged with what they do on a daily basis. They're engaged with each other. They're just disengaged because they don't know what you want and they don't know who you are and they, and they don't see you very often. So quite often you, that, that constant contact, just the walk past and say, how are you going? What are you doing? Uh, for me, for the last couple of years, I actually always wore my high-vis gear, the full high-vis gear that all the, all the field staff wore. I wore it all the time. So we had to go dress in it to go out in the field, but I'd wear it to board meetings. I'd wear it everywhere. And it, it became easy. I didn't have to iron. I didn't have to choose what I was wearing. Uh, but it also, I really felt it gave me a contact with a group of people that were bright and interesting 
but they weren't necessarily the people who spoke out all the time. And so you get this quiet subgroup of people that were trying to make change that would come and talk to you in that space. So, so go and be with the people that you're leading and hang out with them as much as you can. The last one is probably ask for help. Ask for help often. Um, don't sit there in a room going, how am I going to do this? Someone will know how to do it. So pick up the phone and talk to people. Picking up the phone is probably a really important one too. Don't send blind emails where nobody is expecting it and don't send them to 10 people because none of those people (laughs) will respond and neither should they pick up the phone and talk to people. But, yeah, ask questions and talk to people. Okay. So um, I would normally ask about your daily habits that make you successful Uh, And I know at the moment you're between roles and so are there daily habits that you have to make yourself successful or uh, are they all out the window at the moment? No, I think a lot of them are still there. So I get up early and walk the dogs every day and I think I find that pretty good. Um, When I'm with my kids, I try to be with my kids, you know, be 100% with them because they don't let you think about any of the stuff that's at work. I think for me, daily habits, the it, I, we, you, will stick with me forever. I think what went well is a good one as well. But there's, there's things that, that we build our lives around that we should stick with. I, I spoke to you about surfing before. So a couple of times a week I'll surf and that, that really clears my head and um, helps me focus on what I need to focus on. But from a leadership perspective, I found that it, I, we, you, really liberating. It really allowed me to nut down what we needed to do. And like you, you delved into before, it's delegating in a way, but it doesn't feel like delegating. And it also doesn't feel like you're managing people. It feels like you're leading people. It doesn't feel like you're checking in on them every five minutes or micromanaging them. Or as we got to talk about every now and again, we used to nano-manage and pico-manage every now and again. I think it's got to a new level at times. Um, yeah, so I think, I think they're, they're the main things. I think the other one is to really think of your narrative of why you're doing things. And this helps with all sorts of things. So if you're putting a business case together, if you're putting a board paper together, if you're talking to a group of staff out on site who've just repaired you know, some storm damage or whatever, if you have that in your head and you have it there all the time, it's really easy to talk through things and... and have clarity on on what you're doing. Fantastic advice for any new emerging leader and I would say for any existing leader. Um, What podcasts or books do you, that are your go-tos if you have any? So for me, I've talked about David Marquet a bit. The reason I really like him. And he wrote the book, Turning the Ship Around. Turning the Ship Around, yep. He has a beautiful little set of practical things to do at the end of every chapter. But he also linked with my thoughts from a long time ago about trained helplessness, about people being limited to much less than what they're allowed to do. Um, It just really resonated with me. It also really helped in the last year. We we did a, brought in a process called Safety is Defence, which Energy Queensland came up with. And it's built around empowering staff to change what they have to change to make sure that they're safe. Those two things fitted in so well for me that I've been able to utilize them on a daily basis to say, well, not only have we 
have I been thinking about this for a long time? Now I've got a practical process and I can use it through safety to actually empower people to make the decisions they need to make. And for me, those things come together really well. I think pretty much anything Simon Sinek puts out is amazing. Uh, we t- have you, you, have you, I was going to say, have you read his latest, Infinite Game? No, I, I've, I've seen an interview on it. I really love it. It's, it's interesting. I'd written some things recently about some goals in our organisation and when I heard about what he'd written and I heard his intros, I was like, oh, God, everyone's going to think I've just read that. <laughs> but, but They just I, copied it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, goals like being number one in five years are irrelevant. It, it, it might be that number one is totally different to what you're actually doing and it's not relevant whatsoever. Or it could be that number five is three or 400% better than what you are now and number one's never possible, but 304%, three or 400% better in some area. It might be safety, it might be productivity, it might be something else. Is an incredible result that should be celebrated. So I think that really resonated with me that some of these really hard targets um, make people think in an odd way. But I think anyway, anything Simon does is, is pretty amazing. Um, I think... Going back a step, though, I think there's a lot to be gained from talking to people in real life and listening to people and their experiences. So I think while I'm while I look at a lot of podcasts, read a few books, I think it's stuff that you can use every day. I heard Emma Weber on here the other day talking about um, putting learning into action. I think that is where David Marquet and books like his really um, resonate with me is they give you activities to do. So I've even got his activity working book and, and weekly we used to go through those activities with my team. So we'd say, well, go and try this this week and go and do this that week. What worked for you? What didn't work for you? And people go, oh, that felt awkward or that felt good or, yeah, I'm not really sure, but we try things and I think that's probably important. So things that you can get your hands on um, are quite important. True, Rodwell. Thank you very much. This has been such an enjoyable uh, interview. Any um, parting words before we finish? Uh, no, Murray, I've really enjoyed the experience. I really love what you're doing uh, from Manic to Magic. I'm really enjoying that series that you're doing. I think um, people like yourself can have a good influence. I would love to uh, move into that sort of market where I, I can help other people move to clarity. Um, I think clarity is quite important, but also it frees you up to actually do some thinking and, and move into the future. So so for me, I love what you're doing and, uh, yeah, I'm glad to be a bit of, bit of it, a bit of part of it. Thank you. I'll put your LinkedIn contact up on um, the show notes and, and I'll finish off with some closing remarks after I say goodbye. So goodbye. Right. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye. I love that interview with Drew Rodwell where he shared some of his expertise and his leadership experience and certainly some of his secrets and, and strengths of being a leader. Some of my key, tip, key takeaways was a quote that he lives by by David Marquette, which certainty is arrogance and uncertainty is strength. Also, Drew spoke about the four key components of meetings, which is it, I, you and we. And also a coach that he had at one time said make your point and shut up don't keep restating it I also loved the the question another David Marquette question which is what went well is that to prevent people staying 
in the negative space. And then finally, his three or four tips for um, emerging leaders is follow what you're interested in, listen to people no matter who they are, and engagement should be a leader engaging with the team rather than the team having to feel engaged and to ask for help often and do that by picking up the phone or seeing people in person. So thanks again to, to Drew for a fantastic interview. And if you know someone you think I should interview that demonstrates great leadership abilities, please let me know. I would love to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please share the link with colleagues and friends or on your social media feeds and help others learn how to be great leaders. Or if you're in a team, what a great leader looks like and how you can help develop that. If you know of someone that you think I should interview, please let me know via my website. Thanks.